You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests. Warning. This podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse and the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 4, The Angry Drunkard. I was never molested by any Catholic priest. Pretty amazing, considering five of the priests on Springfield's so-called credibly accused list spent time at my family's church, St. Matthew's, in Indian Orchard. I was especially lucky since I served as an altar boy for seven years. This episode focuses on one of those five bad priests, a man I knew very well, Father Charles J. Sullivan, the pastor of St. Matthew's from 1979 until 1982. He was later punished by church officials, secretly, for his whoremongering, his drunken harassment of young girls, and his threat to shoot the bishop. And Father Sullivan's name wasn't made public until 2011, and the details of his crimes have never been revealed. The first step in finding out if a Catholic priest has been, quote, credibly accused of sexual abuse is to search the database at bishop-accountability.org. Maintained by a team of devoted Catholics, disgusted with the secretive way church officials handled these matters, the bishopaccountability.org website is a gigantic clearinghouse of court files, news stories, victim statements, and analysis of the church sexual abuse crisis. Be forewarned, curious researchers might plunge down a sad and disturbing rabbit hole of no return. The list of child molesting priests is overwhelming. You could scroll all day long, every day, for a month, and still not be finished reading about the almost 4,000 clerics listed in the database. And that's only 60% of the at least 7,000 credibly accused Catholic priests. Let me put it another way. The identities of at least 3,000 child molesting American Catholic priests still remain protected by bishops. Their whereabouts are unknown. Bishopaccountability.org doesn't even have a photo of Father Sullivan and no details about his alleged crime. A knowledgeable source deep within the diocese told me that Father Sullivan's problems were mostly alcohol-related. 
The source said that the booze caused tons of trouble, so church officials removed Father Sullivan quietly and without fuss back in 1993. Through online research, interviews, newspaper archives, family lore, and my own personal memories of Father Sullivan, I've been able to piece together this strange tale that gets stranger after this drunkard gets arrested on his way to the bishop's residence with a loaded shotgun on the front seat and murder in his heart. He died five years ago, alone and forgotten in a Missouri nursing home. In 1979, Jimmy Carter was president. On the chalkboard of my sixth grade classroom at St. Matthew's School in Indian Orchard, we kept track of the number of days the 52 Americans had been held hostage in Iran. The Cold War raged, and the skies above western Massachusetts were busy with air traffic to and from the strategically important Westover Air Force Base in the city of Chicopee, three and a half miles from our house. The air raid siren tests every Friday at noon were a screaming reminder of the ever-present threat of World War III. Besides the specter of nuclear Armageddon, my childhood was pretty great. My parents, Nancy and Joe Barry, had the good sense to buy a ranch house in the working-class section of Indian Orchard, one of Springfield's 17 neighborhoods. The house was relatively small, for a family of eight, but a huge bonus was having Lake Lorraine right across the street, along with a 50-foot-long strip of beach where my friends and I frolicked unsupervised and kept a leaky rowboat. Add the basketball hoop my dad installed in our backyard, and you've got a boyhood paradise. We were devoted parishioners of St. Matthew's Church, Mass every Sunday and on every holy day of obligation meatless Fridays during Lent. Occasional fasting, confessions, and other tortures were routine. As further proof of our faithfulness, consider our summer vacation road trips. Six kids and two adults in a station wagon towing a small camper. Florida, Texas, New Mexico with a side trip to Mexico, Canada, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, Maine, we always managed to find a Catholic church and never missed Sunday Mass. My parents were also steadfast believers in Catholic education, which, by the nature of the beast, also meant they were diligent volunteers. My dad ran the weekly parish bingo game, and my mom helped out with the school library, and both served on boards and committees tasked to find ways to keep St. Matthew's School open. Being devout Catholics, my parents never questioned the infallibility of the Pope. They especially trusted the Vatican's local representative, the parish priest. Having father over for Sunday dinner or to enjoy a cocktail or two at our annual Christmas party was considered an honor. This period of my life was pretty damn idyllic, and it probably would have been perfect if it had not been for Sister Ruth O'Connor, a nun who became principal of St. Matthew's School when I was in the second grade. Soon after that, she started coming to our house for twice-weekly sewing lessons from my mother, a talented seamstress and doll maker. After a couple months, 
the lessons stopped, but her weekday visits continued, and soon Sister Ruth started coming over every Sunday, too. My parents, for all intents and purposes, adopted this dour-faced nun, a humorless bore, and a snitch who dutifully reported every bit of school trouble to my mother. Even worse was the way my neighborhood pals would mockingly ask if Sister Ruth was home before deciding whether or not to play hoops in our backyard. When I graduated from St. Matthew's and went on to Cathedral, Springfield's Catholic high school, Sister Ruth resigned her principal's position and took a job teaching math at Cathedral. I believe, to this day, that she did this solely to continue spying on me. To state the obvious, as a Catholic family of eight, St. Matthew's School and Church were central to our lives. Father Sullivan was round-faced and 42 years old when he became pastor of St. Matthew's during the winter of my sixth grade. At the time, I was one of the leading altar boys and took my job very seriously. I knew the Mass by heart and always listened attentively to the biblical readings and Gospels. Judging by the amount of time I spent in church and on the altar, an observer may have thought I was training to become a priest. Not to brag, but I started earlier than most altar boys. Tall for my age, I was first pressed into holy service during the summer of 1974, between first and second grade. I was an emergency substitute when the scheduled candle bearer failed to show up for Sunday Mass. Thanks to my solemn manner and above-average height, I soon had a key role in every major Mass and religious holiday at St. Matthew's Church. At least once or twice a week, I was excused from classes for a couple hours to help with funerals. At least once a month, I'd get a Saturday wedding gig, which was sweet because holy matrimony included a $5 tip in cash from the best man's wallet. And whenever the bishop came to St. Matthew's, I'd be assigned crozier duty, tending to the big guy's shepherd's hook so the bishop's hands were free for blessings and other holy gesticulations. My dedication and professionalism quickly made me Father Sullivan's favorite, and I regarded him like I did all priests as a shaman, the direct representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, backed by the Holy Spirit and the saints and angels in heaven above, blessed with the power to transform a golden goblet of white wine into the blood of Christ. This isn't a symbolic ceremony, by the way. Called the transubstantiation, good Catholics are supposed to believe, without doubt, that when certain hollowed words are uttered, and bells rung, wine and bread can be transmutated into the blood and body of a man who reportedly died two millennia ago. My fellow altar boys and I quickly learned that Father Sullivan's preferred serving of wine was much larger than the other priests. For him, the goblet had to be full, and the ritual also required a splash or two of holy water. But Father Sullivan, he only took a tiny drop a fraction of a splash. Then he would raise the golden chalice to heaven and eagerly recite the prayers necessary to consecrate the potion. A handbell would ring, and Father Sullivan would bring the golden goblet to his lips. Not drinking, gulping, 
like a parched and desperate man dying of thirst. And the student who raises the most money in the walkathon will receive this bicycle, Father Sullivan proclaimed, pointing at the brand new Huffy 10 speed perched on the edge of the St. Matthew's School stage. The entire student body, about 200 kids from grades first to eight, cheered and clapped wildly. The bike was, by far, the best prize for any St. Matthew's fundraiser ever. Every little bit helps. Father Sullivan said once the assembled school kids calmed down from the big bike announcement, when you're asking for pledges, be sure to mention that a successful walkathon will save your school from closing. Instantly, I wanted to win that bike. I was so tired of hand-me-down clunkers from my older brothers. To me, the Huffy looked like a sleek and powerful steed. With ten speeds, even the tallest hill in Indian Orchard would be easy to climb. My fellow school chums and I were accustomed to selling candy bars, door to door, on a regular basis to help keep the school open. Plus, since this was the 1970s, long before mandated recycling, the school also raised cash by periodically staging, quote, collection drives for newspaper, glass bottles, and aluminum, amassing the trash in a tractor trailer until it was full, then selling the stuff to a recycler for pennies on the pound. Most of the financial support actually came from gambling, specifically the weekly bingo game run by my dad and his pals. Every Tuesday night, a couple hundred people would pack into the school's combined auditorium, gym, and cafeteria to smoke cigarettes drink coffee, and eat donuts while playing bingo, all to benefit St. Matthew's School. But eventually, even the gambling lucre and cash from the gangs of door-to-door sales kids weren't enough to counter the rising cost of parochial education. Parochial, for all you non-Catholics out there, means related to a parish, which also means that if a local church can't pay the school's bills, the school closes, and the bishop never bailed out parish schools. The people of St. Matthew's were optimistic. If anyone could save the school, it was Father Sullivan. According to parish gossip, our new pastor had been the bishop's right-hand finance man downtown at headquarters. When it came to raising money, Father Sullivan was reputedly a wizard. The priest's first new idea was the walkathon. I won't keep you in suspense. I won the bike. Thanks to all the candy bar customers I already had, plus my willingness to pound the pavement and cold call people, appealing to their sense of decency or guilt concerning the school's impending doom. Somehow, I raised $1,400, over four grand in today's money. In a box of files in my attic, there's an ancient news clipping with a photo from the local paper. I'm standing proudly alongside my new wheels. Posed next to me is a grinning Father Sullivan and my stone-faced arch-enemy, Sister Ruth. The prized Huffy turned out to be very heavy and tough to pedal. I missed my old wheels almost immediately. Even worse was the realization that if I had spent the time and energy mowing lawns, raking leaves, and doing other odd jobs around the neighborhood, I could have purchased a nice bike like a Trek or a Peugeot. Instead, I labored hard for a real clunker, 
and the fruits of my labors paid for maybe a month of teacher's salaries. And the reaper was still at the school's front door. The walkathon's triumph, though, gave the parishioners confidence in their new pastor's financial acumen. And my fundraising prowess impressed Father Sullivan, further cementing my status as a leader among the altar boys. A couple months later, summer arrived, and Father Sullivan invited me to go water skiing. It would be my first time ever. Change into your bathing suit, Father Sullivan said. I need to get a couple things together. We were alone in his family's cottage in Brimfield, about 20 miles from Indian Orchard. Located on the shore of Little Alum Pond, there was a dock and a motorboat. The couple of things the priest needed to get together were whiskey and ice. While he fiddled at the bar, I pulled down my pants and underwear and quickly stepped into my swimsuit. Even now, almost 40 years later, I can hear the clink of cubes in his glass, followed by the generous pour and splash. I can hear the gulp of relief, then the sound of satisfaction with the second and third swallow, and finally the fourth, which finishes off that glass full of brown booze. I pretended to stare out the window as he dropped his trousers and underwear and pulled on a pair of swim trunks emblazoned with the logo of the Boston College Eagles, just like a bathing suit my dad wore, red with yellow piping. They were both alumni. Father Sullivan grinned. You ready? he asked, refilling his whiskey glass. Yes, Father, I dutifully answered. Like I said earlier, water skiing is pretty easy. Once you get the hang of it, it'll be real fun. He handed me a beach towel in the ice bucket. He carried the bottle in his glass as we walked down to the boat and got underway. The day was warm and sunny with a gentle breeze, just enough to make the lake sparkle and ripple. Father Sullivan's advice seemed simple enough. He kept repeating it while helping strap the skis to my feet. Remember to bend your knees, he said. Keep your arms straight and lean back. I was scrawny and clumsy with very little upper body strength and a terrible sense of balance. After a couple failed attempts, it became painfully apparent that I was not meant to water ski. At first, Father Sullivan laughed jovially each time he brought the boat around so I could grab the tow rope and give it another try. Bend your knees, keep your arms straight, and lean back, he said again and again, a mantra almost. You'll get it. Do it once, then it's easy. But I couldn't. Keep your arms straight, the mantra became a prayer, then a curse. For the love of Jesus, what the hell's the matter with you? Keep your damn arms straight. I was cold and tired clearly not having any fun. He put the boat in gear. Exhausted, I couldn't hold on, not even for a second. Father Sullivan shook his head and scowled. He put the boat back into neutral and angrily pulled the tow rope aboard. Then, without even a glance in my direction, he returned to his seat, put the engine in gear, hit the throttle, and took off. The boat flew towards the other end of the lake, leaving me behind. 
I watched as the boat got further and further away until Father Sullivan started a long, lazy loop to come about. I wasn't in danger of drowning thanks to my skis, life jacket, and the ability to tread water, but I was so cold and scared. There were other boats on the lake, and I feared someone was going to run me down. Finally, he returned, cutting the engine as he approached. He pointed to the ladder, mounted to the stern. Get in the damn boat, Father Sullivan snarled, raising the glass to his lips. Again, he was still angry, but not as furious as he had been. Still, his priestly mask had cracked and I'd seen through the facade. After the water skiing trip, I kept my trap shut and never mentioned the priest's behavior to my parents. Not sure they would have believed me anyway. They'd probably say I was exaggerating. To them, Father Sullivan was a holy man. He could do no wrong. As for the priest, he acted like the whole trip to the lake had never happened which was fine with me as well, because this was the beginning of the end. Within the year, I'd be questioning the very concept of God, along with all the rules of his religion. Later that fall, on a cold Sunday night, Father Sullivan poured himself another drink, then returned to his desk to resume punching calculator keys. The school budget numbers weren't looking good. The projected revenues from the weekly collection, the bingo game, and the various fundraisers had been overly optimistic. There was going to be a budget shortfall. Father Sullivan sighed, then sipped his whiskey. The nuns were to blame, of course. All through the 1970s, fewer women had been entering the convent which led to a shortage of unpaid Catholic school teachers. So for the past couple of years, St. Matthews had grown more dependent on lay teachers to fill vacancies. Compared to the nuns, these civilians were super expensive. In the big scheme of things, though, the school budget shortfall was nickel-dime stuff. Peanuts compared to the high stakes he dealt with while working at the chancery downtown where his private office was a couple doors away from the bishops. Father Sullivan was one of the rare priests with business training. Until the previous summer, he'd been an up-and-coming number cruncher. Serving as co-chancellor for finance, he worked directly with the bishop on all money matters. For several years, he ran the diocesan fundraising campaign and raised millions of dollars annually. That sort of money didn't come from the bishop standing in a pulpit, quoting scripture and begging for donations. Father Sullivan schmoozed the wealthier Catholics one-on-one, often sealing big deals at cocktail parties. He'd been successful until the summer of 1978. A series of minor drunken mishaps led to a so-called vacation, which itself led to a drinking spree that resulted in a car crash. Father Sullivan was banished from the chancery and sent to a special clinic where drunkard priests dried out. Upon his release from rehab, Father Sullivan was assigned to St. Matthew's. He considered this both a punishment and a challenge. It was a musty old church with an aging congregation. If he saved the school, 
and increased weekly revenues so St. Matthew's could get caught up on all the mandatory 6% tax it owed the diocese, an account that was dreadfully in arrears, he might get back in the bishop's good graces, or so he prayed. Bingo, bake sales, and walkathons weren't enough to pay the bills. After another sip of whiskey, the answer came to him, the St. Matthew's Parish Festival. Thanks to loopholes in Massachusetts gambling laws, churches could become temporary, low-stakes casinos, provided they paid the fees and obeyed the rules. Festivals were the latest way for churches to make tax-free money off their flock and the rest of the community. Immaculate Conception, our rival parish at the other end of Indian Orchard, held their first annual festival the year before. It featured live music, Polish foods, carnival rides, and lots of gambling. And it was a huge moneymaker. The only roadblock was getting permission from the diocese. The chancery determined the schedule of parish festivals to ensure they didn't compete for paying customers. Immaculate Conception's festival date was in mid-July. That meant mid-August was the earliest date St. Matthew's could have theirs. To attract more non-Catholic cash, he decided St. Matthew's big event would be like an old-time carnival. Folks of all denominations from neighborhoods all around Springfield would want to attend. There'd be midway rides and games, stuffed animals and cotton candy, and games of chance. That's where the real money was made. And if it worked, he'd look like a friggin' hero and be back downtown at the chancery in no time. And so, the festival subcommittee of the parish council and I felt that the school's parking lot and playgrounds were just too small, Father Sullivan announced from the pulpit. The carnival company needs lots of rooms to set up their mechanical rides and bright lights of the midway, the priest continued. Plus, our games of chance require space, and our parish dining tent needs to be quite sizable, large enough for bingo and plenty of room for the mobs of hungry people who'll be buying all that delicious food from the Women's Guild concession stand. Thankfully, we've had many parishioners sign up to volunteer, but as you can see, this is growing into a major operation, and we're going to need all the help we can get. Working together, we'll save the school. That explained the decision to rent the multiplex of baseball and soccer fields adjacent to the John F. Kennedy Junior High for the festival. Of course, my parents had been eager volunteers from the get-go. My dad was overseeing the gambling operation and serving as the chairman of the church subcommittee responsible for the whole shebang. My mom and a gang of her friends were running the concessions tent and she was the boss of the kitchen. The first annual St. Matthew's Parish Festival was a huge success, thanks to the hard-working parishioners and the crowds of gamblers praying to beat the odds and losing. In true Catholic festival loophole fashion, there was a $2 limit per bet, but no limit on the number of bets. Also, children were allowed to gamble. The dozen games of chance were mostly variations of roulette and chuckalock, plus there were hourly 50-50 raffles and other drawings with cash prizes. 
For those chasing even faster gratification, pull-tab lottery tickets were available. The carnival-themed festival was fun for non-gamblers, too. There were a half-dozen adult rides, including bumper cars, and just as many kids' rides, including a small Ferris wheel, plus lots of greasy food truck fare and cotton candy vendors. The Midway, staffed by carnies, was lined with game booths offering prizes like giant stuffed teddy bears, mirrors with beer company logos, and feathered roach clips. My unglamorous job for the whole festival was trash patrol, but I discovered that emptying garbage cans can make one invisible. I was able to observe the goings-on, particularly cute girls, without being mistaken for a perv and hauling a wheeled cart full of trash bags to the row of dumpsters by the generator truck gave me backstage access to the other side of the festival, behind the glittering facade, where huge power cables snaked everywhere, and campers and cars, seemingly parked pell-mell, created a temporary carny neighborhood. When all the money was finally counted, Father Sullivan was indeed seen as a hero. The parish council was very pleased with this new revenue stream. Father Sullivan, though, wasn't completely satisfied. This is just a start, the priest promised from the pulpit. Just wait until next year. It was now the week before the second annual St. Matthew's Parish Festival, mid-August of 1981, This year's event was going to be bigger, brighter, and more spectacular because Father Sullivan had acquired the permits to stage a Saturday night fireworks show over the pond. A real crowd pleaser, for sure, but it added another level of complication involving the fire department and a safety plan. But there was one big variable beyond anyone's control, the weather. Last year, God Almighty took care of the people of St. Matthew's, blessing them with sunny days and warm nights, and the congregation was counting on this festival to be more lucrative than the last. Jesus Christ, the priest said aloud, more in fear than prayer, please, no rain. Hiding behind the office trailer, Father Sullivan took a quick swig from his flask. It was just before noon on the final gray day of the second annual St. Matthew's Parish Festival, which had turned out to be a colossal failure, a muddy debacle, cursed by downpours, showers, drizzle, and sprinkles. The weather was terrible, and Father Sullivan was screwed. The rain kept people away, so the gambling proceeds were down, way down. Same for the beer and wine sales and the profits from the Women's Guild's food tent. The skies had miraculously cleared for a spell on Saturday night, just in time for the fireworks display. After the last pyrotechnic, God unleashed his own light show. Thunder boomed, lightning flashed, and torrential rain chased all the festival-goers back to their cars and homes. Sully had gambled on the weather, counting on the Lord above, and he'd lost. The priest took another swig. He needed the liquid courage to deal with the festival subcommittee, who were waiting for him 
inside the trailer. That's where they counted the money. He tried to make a joke about money changers in the temple, but it wouldn't be funny. Not when the subcommittee realized how much the parish had lost. One week later, the priest was still overwhelmed. He sat, sipping whiskey in the pre-dawn gray of Sunday morning. The final total wasn't known yet, but it was clear the parish had lost at least five grand, probably closer to 7,000, maybe even more, because the bills kept coming in the mail. Porta potties, dumpster fees, rent to the city of Springfield for use of the public athletic fields, and he still hadn't paid for the ads the parish placed in the weekly newspapers to promote the second annual festival. Father Sullivan had promised his flock that huge crowds would come for the fireworks and stay for the gambling and carnival rides. But God had not cooperated. He didn't answer Sully's prayers. He drained his glass. His master plan to save St. Matthew's and get back in with the bishop was failing. He poured four more fingers of whiskey. No need for new cubes. The old ones hadn't had time to melt. It was more than just financial failure. Questions and voices haunted him. Doubts, fears, spiritual dilemmas, existential uncertainty. What was he doing with his life? Not succeeding, that was for sure. He tried to silence the noise in his head with more booze. Father Sullivan didn't show up for the 11 a.m. Mass that Sunday morning in August of 1981. That was surprising because he'd been in such a merry mood during the 9 a.m. service. At 11.05, with no celebrant in the church, the usher went to the rectory and found Father Sullivan asleep on the living room couch, snoring loudly. When awoken, the priest was very drunk and very angry. For the first time in memory, the 11 a.m. mass was canceled. Men in white coats and a black van came and took Father Sullivan away, never to return. With no explanation from the bishop, various priests filled in until a new pastor, Father Norman Ricard, a retired Coast Guard chaplain, was assigned to the parish. A French-Canadian from Worcester, Father Ricard was tough and gruff, well-seasoned from serving three tours in Vietnam with the U.S. Marines and Navy. Surly and impatient with whiny parishioners, Father Ricard was the exact opposite of the jovial and drunk Father Sullivan. I liked Father Ricard instantly especially after he explained to the congregation that he'd taken this assignment as a favor to the bishop on the condition that the new job didn't interfere with his thrice-weekly golf game. And he wasn't kidding. On July 20th, 1989, eight years after the St. Matthew's debacle, Father Sullivan was behind the wheel of his car headed to the family cottage in Brimfield for some much-needed rest and relaxation on this beautiful summer day. Freedom, finally, his most recent stay at the clinic 
had been the worst. Two months of terrible food and terrible people. He had been released just before lunch and now was feeling grateful and hungry. How many times had he been to rehab? Sully didn't want to count. Rehab was just part of the vicious cycle. Rehab, then job, then failure, then rehab, then another job, and another failure. The year after the St. Matthew's fiasco, the bishop gave him one more shot as a pastor, this time at St. Anne's and Three Rivers, which only lasted a couple of months. For the next half dozen years, when not on sick leave, he worked as a chaplain on various assignments, the type of gigs the diocese reserves for misfits, miscreants, and other church unreliables. He served as chaplain up at UMass and Amherst for a spell. Then he was chaplain for a couple prisons, and he'd done some good work there until another battle with the bottle brought him down. Sully was very fortunate to have inherited the Brimfield Cottage and the speedboat still parked at the dock. It was a place to hide, a place to recover from recovery to have some fun again. Most priests didn't have such luxuries. Plus, even on sick leave, Sully still drew a paycheck and received health care and other benefits, so he had the resources to maintain a comfortable lifestyle. Sully knew he was lucky for another reason, too. Six months earlier, he'd been detained by the vice squad. The cops had raided the ranch house motor inn, a notorious den of iniquity on Boston Road in Springfield, he had the good sense to tell the Irish-looking police sergeant that he was a priest. Otherwise, his name would have ended up in the newspaper story about the series of busts that led to the ranch house brothel's eventual shutdown. Word of Sully's presence there, however, had drifted up to the chancery. So back to rehab he went. Same old, same old. Sully was looking forward to a swim after lunch, maybe a quick spin around the lake in the speedboat, followed by a big steak on the grill for supper, a couple of baked potatoes with lots of sour cream, maybe some spinach or corn on the cob, whatever looked good in the stop-and-shop produce department. He also needed to pick up a jug of whiskey. He had a new rule. Only drink at home and always in moderation. That way he'd be able to stay away from the bars and the hookers and all the other temptations. As he'd soon discover, even at home, the old resentments festered and turned into rage. Rage over losing his big job at the chancery and all the respect it gave him. Rage over the humiliating trips to rehab and all the third-rate priestly assignments. And Sully knew one man was responsible for all these falls from grace. And it wasn't him. It was the bishop. By 7.30 p.m. that night, the whiskey bottle was almost empty, and Sully was drunk, angry, and looking for trouble. He'd driven the 25 miles back to downtown Springfield and was headed east on State Street a couple blocks from the chancery. Gonna pay the bishop a little visit. Maybe even kill his excellency 
if the old saw didn't listen to him, or maybe he'd just scare the shit out of the bastard. Either way, the loaded shotgun, riding shotgun, was ready for action. Sully knew the neighborhood like the back of his hand, a quick left turn onto Byers Street, and... Fortunately, there were no injuries when Sully took that sudden left, crashing head-on into local resident Hector Hernandez, who'd been driving west on State Street. According to the July 22, 1989 edition of the Springfield Union News, Father Charles J. Sullivan was arrested at the scene of the accident and charged with drunk driving, carrying a loaded weapon in the front seat of the car, and failure to yield the right-of-way. According to the news story, it took several officers to arrest the priest. The diocese wouldn't let him rot in jail. Attorney John J. Egan, a big-shot local lawyer, promptly took care of bail and appeared at the arraignment, entering not-guilty pleas on behalf of his client. Sully didn't show up for court. He was already back in rehab. The ugly incident blew over. According to my source inside the diocese, there is no mention of Sully's three-count arrest in his personnel file, and I found no further mention of the car crash or gun charge in the local newspaper archives. Four years later, in the summer of 1993, Sully was 57 years old and assigned to Holy Cross, a parish in one of Springfield's more well-to-do neighborhoods. In exchange for room and board, he served as an extra pair of hands, saying mass, hearing confessions, and performing other priestly chores around the church. He'd had gigs like this before, a faceless functionary in a Roman collar, forgettable, almost invisible. He was drinking, of course, but still staying out of the bars too risky. Also, his so-called boss, the pastor of Holy Cross, was well aware of his struggle with the bottle, so Sully tried to keep the boozing as hidden as possible. On this particular day, Sully was hammered by noon. He'd spent the morning in nearby Nathanville Park, pretending to read a book, sipping whiskey from a coffee mug that he occasionally refilled from a thermos of brown booze. Now Sully was drunk and hungry, so he headed back to Holy Cross for lunch. Timed right, he'd get to the dining room after the other priest had finished eating, but before the cook took away the cold cup platter, the potato salad, and the coffee pot. A sandwich, then a nap. That was his plan. Sully parked his car on a side street less than a block from the church and started staggering home. Clumsy with drink, he was in danger of falling down. Squinting ahead, he spotted a group of teenage girls walking towards him. He grabbed a hold of a telephone pole, not wanting to stumble in front of an audience. Too late, the girls had seen his teeter and were giggling. Their laughter embarrassed and angered him. Apparently, these young ladies found his discombobulation amusing. Sully's temper flared as they fell into a single file to pass him on the sidewalk, and he furiously commanded the girls to stop laughing. That made them giggle even louder. 
and he'd had enough. As the last girl sauntered by, Sully suddenly reached forward and grabbed her by the arm, wrenching the surprised teen toward him. Stop it! Stop your damn laughter! Stop making fun of an old man! Damn you! He sputtered, his boozy spittle wetting the girl's face. She struggled and screamed and finally broke free of his drunken grip. The teenagers ran away. Sully didn't realize they recognized him from church and were racing home to tell their parents. So he continued his slow journey to the rectory, oblivious to his pending doom. Angry mothers were on the phone with the pastor and then the bishop. Soon, Sully would be in big trouble. Father Sullivan picked the wrong year to grab a child. In 1993, the Springfield Diocese had formed the, quote, Commission to Investigate Improper Conduct of Diocesan Personnel, mostly in response to the scandal created by the guilty plea by Father Richard Levine. But Sully, according to my source, inside the diocese, wasn't a child molester, unlike all the other priests who appeared before the tribunal that year. He was just an angry drunkard, accused of grabbing a teenager by the arm. Inappropriate, he admitted, but nothing compared to the sex crimes of the four fellow priests who'd stood before the tribunal that summer. Didn't matter, the diocese was tired of Sully's drunkenness. The verdict, Sully was ordered to devote the rest of his days to, quote, prayer and reflection, and could no longer present himself as a priest. Sully's life was suddenly a hell of a lot easier. No more pastoral work or celebrating masses or hearing confessions. Plus, he'd still receive the same base pay and benefits, so he'd be able to keep his car and maintain the lifestyle he'd grown to love. For the next decade, Sully was shifted around the diocese. Depending on who had an extra chair at the dining room table for a freeloading near-do-well, this arrangement suited Sully. He'd been able to stay drunk and out of trouble, that is, until he was sent to St. Adalbert's in 2005. Screw them, Sully said aloud to no one. He was alone in the St. Albert's Rectory in the western Massachusetts town of Turner's Falls. It was a rainy spring day in 2006, and Sully was drunk. He was always drunk, or getting drunk, or sleeping off a drunk. Sully looked down at the registered letter from the diocesan chancellor. Once again, Sully was being ordered to vacate the premises. He'd lost track of how many times they told him to leave St. Adalbert's. Countless messages erased from the answering machine. Letters he'd burned in the fireplace. Screw them, he said again. Sully knew he had him by the balls. The diocese needed him out of St. Adalbert's because they were going to sell the rectory and the church building. The pastor had been transferred, and the former parishioners were already attending other parishes. But they couldn't put the property on the market if this old, angry, drunkard ex-priest wouldn't leave. Screw them, he said again crumpling up the letter and envelope and throwing them in the general direction of the fireplace. 
He'd been refusing to vacate since last fall, and now, he believed, he had the law on his side. Squatter's rights, he said, and grabbed his half-full glass of cheap whiskey from the foyer table. He took a long sip. He wasn't going to let some damn mailman ruin his day. Sully started shuffling toward the living room. Sully stopped in his tracks. Who the hell's ringing the doorbell? The deacon ringing the doorbell of St. Adalbert's Rectory had a long and successful civilian career running a big company. The bishop liked the deacon's stern demeanor and respected his people-managing skills. Plus, the deacon was a large man, strong and determined. That's why he was chosen to deal with Sully. The deacon rang the bell again. One more time and he just unlocked the door with the key he'd been given. After all, he was here as the agent of the bishop, the de facto owner of the rectory, and Sully's actual boss. The deacon was here to remind Sully of the vow he made so many decades ago to obey the bishop, and he had a real threat folded neatly in his coat pocket eviction papers the deacon would deliver to the sheriff's office if Sully didn't agree to leave immediately. As the deacon leaned forward to ring the bell a third time, the door opened a crack. Yeah, Sully said. What do you want? Father Sullivan, the deacon said, pushing the door open with authority. It's your good friend from downtown. Oh, Sully said, taking a couple steps back, careful not to spill his drink. The deacon looked around and tried to hide his dismay. There were piles of stuff. Newspapers, magazines, clothing, cardboard boxes, and crumpled pieces of mail everywhere. More disgusting, though, was the odor. The whole place stank of unwashed feet and dirty dishes with overtones of mold. And Father Sullivan looked like a madman. His T-shirt, stained yellow and stretched, reeked of booze and armpits. The zipper was broken on Sully's food-splotched and torn trousers, and the old priest was barefoot with hooked orange talons desperately in need of trimming. Father Sullivan, the deacon said, I'm here on behalf of the bishop, and I've been instructed to issue this ultimatum. Vacate the premises with me this afternoon or prepare to face the consequences. Huh? What consequences? Even hammered, Sully registered the seriousness in the deacon's tone. I have in my pocket eviction papers for the sheriff. If you decide to stay here, you will be trespassing and arrested, taken to jail, and this time we won't be hiring you a lawyer. The deacon paused and stared into Sully's eyes. Well, huh. I'm going to say this slowly so you understand. If you refuse to vacate, the bishop is cutting you off. No more stipend, no more health insurance, no more places to stay. The deacon shook his head. No more support from the church. In fact, the bishop is so angry that you've refused to leave that he's been tempted to cut you off regardless. In the end, however, he's a forgiving man and wishes you no harm. 
you pack a suitcase and I bring you up to St. Michael's, the home for retired priests. And if I don't, by the end of the week, you'll be in jail, penniless, abandoned by the church. He looked at his glass, not even half full. Oh, well, he said and drained it with a loud gulp. I'll go get my stuff. Sully walked down the hallway and stopped at the foot of the staircase. He took a deep breath and began to climb to the second floor. The deacon ventured as far as the entrance to the kitchen. The stench was overwhelming. Putrid, he'd write in his report to the bishop. Dirty plates, bowls and cups were overstacked in the sink and on the counters. Unwashed pots and pans were piled everywhere else. In the corner was a giant trash barrel overflowing with empty TV dinner boxes and other garbage. Without even stepping on the linoleum, the deacon knew the floor was sticky with filth. Sully is dead. From what I've been able to piece together, after leaving St. Adelbert, it appears he stayed at a couple other church properties, then a rehab clinic, then two different subsidized apartments. I found his final address, a Missouri nursing home. Last winter, I called the place and spoke with a couple nurses. Sully died either in 2014 or 2015. The nursing home's computers were down, so they couldn't give me the exact date. One nurse remembered him as a jovial old man, but her supervisor's opinion was more guarded. She told me he never had visitors, except for one old priest from the Villainy Center in nearby Dittner. That's a halfway house and counseling center for the most troubled Catholic priests in the Midwest. I haven't been able to locate an obituary or even a brief mention of Father Charles Sullivan's death, which is unusual in this digital era. More proof that Sully died all alone, forgotten by everyone except me, and maybe now, you. Devils and Dirt Bags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Thanks to Chris Busby of MainerNews.com and Brian Fitzgerald for editorial assistance. Thanks to Dave Gutter for the theme song. Thanks to my sweet wife, Sweetgrass, for the musical interludes. And thank you for listening. Be sure to visit DevilsAndDirtBags.com for show notes, top-secret memos, and to learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Over the next four episodes, we're going to take a close look at the life and times of the man I'm calling Father X, the worst of the five credibly accused priests from my childhood. He was a serial molester and left the priesthood and Massachusetts in 1993. With financial help from the church, he pursued a new career as a drug and alcohol counselor. 
never punished or prosecuted or required to register with any sex offender database. Nobody outside church leadership knew he was a monster. A couple of years ago, I became aware of Father X's crimes. My initial investigation revealed a lot more, including the fact he was still alive and resided about 250 miles from my home in rural Maine. So I took a road trip and knocked on his door, using the element of surprise and a bottle of 100-proof bourbon as truth serum. I asked my old pal about his unpunished crimes. Did he feel guilty? Had he suffered for his sins? Thanks to a hidden tape recorder, you'll hear his answers in his own words soon. <laughs> <laughs> 